This episode is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters for your free audiobook download. Now entering nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. We have a brilliant group of writers with us today, so let's introduce our panelists. Uh, our first panelist has a background in engineering, physics, and electrical engineering from Cornell University. <laughs> for God's sake. Uh, he's written for such series uh, as the Star Trek series Deep Space Nine and Voyager, Farscape, The Outer Limits. Uh, he was also the co-showrunner of CSI and is currently on NBC's fall series, Grimm. Please welcome Nareen Shankar. Uh, our next panelists, both graduates of USC, and their early work was in the final seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, where they worked with producer Ron Moore, and they later joined Moore's rethink of Battlestar Galactica, uh, where they're credited with over a dozen episodes, and all the good ones. Uh, after two seasons on CSI, uh, they've been involved with the Battlestar spinoff, Blood and Chrome, and they're currently on uh, TNT's Falling Skies. Please welcome Bradley Thompson and David Weddle. Hi, guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. I'm Bradley. That's David. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate that. Uh, and finally, uh, our last panelist's early credits include series such as Beverly Hills 90210 and Northern Exposure. She then went on to work for powerhouse series such as NYPD Blue, for which she won an Emmy, and ER, before creating the CBS series Cold Case, which ran for seven se seasons. Please welcome Meredith Steam. Uh, guys, let's start. Let's start with breaking in, and in fact, let's start a little before breaking in. Uh, tell us about your background and uh, sort of the TV environment when you were growing up. Uh, what was what, what what was your input? What was your uh, and we open this up to any entertainment, but uh, what was on television? What were you reading? What influenced you from a young age? And then, how did you start to make that leap? When did you decide? This is what I want to do for a living. Uh, Noreen? Well, yeah, it's you. Ladies first. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, no, no. Jeez, um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I, you know, you, can, is this all right? All right, okay. Um, I, you know, I was, uh, I, I probably. Where I, are you from? Um, I was born in India, and I grew up in uh, the United States and Canada. Okay. And, um, and how, from how young an age were you in the U.S.? 
very young. Okay. Yeah. So you really had an American upbringing. Really American. It's okay. like television was sort of a big part of that. How so? Like, I can't remember not watching television. <laughs> it's like, and, and obviously a lot of science fiction when I was growing up. What kind of stuff was on at the time? The earliest things were actually, believe it or not, Star Trek. I mean, I, I can I can remember that when I was a kid. Stood out. Um, I think that. Um, I mean, so was it the original Star Trek? Series it was the original was Star Trek series. I'm probably dating myself, but <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was like a big thing when I was a kid. I mean, that's what you watched on television, and and I think it probably influenced the fact that I ended up becoming an engineer. But it also influenced the fact that I ended up back in television when I rejected engineering and wanted to be a writer. So. Um, did you know writing was an interest from an early age? Despite I, going into the sciences? Yeah, I did. I mean, it was, um, it was nothing that was particularly... Um, uh, it wasn't really considered a career in, in sort of my ethnic group. It's like a classic American immigrant. It's like you're, if you were Indian, you were a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or a businessman. It's like the notion of becoming a writer was completely absurd and unthinkable. <laughs> so it was... It still it, sort of is. Let's it be honest. sort of is. I mean, it's like, you know, I can probably count the, the people that I, you know, I know for, with Indian backgrounds on the, you know, maybe on one hand. Meredith knows one. <laughs> I mean, it's like so. It's in, and I probably know the other, and that was on CSI. So it's like it's fine. Um, but it was. Um, but but I, I think my my mother loved movies when we were you know when I was growing up, and that was sort of always part of of my experience. And it was it was you know I think television back then was such a, an important force in the culture and it wasn't so broken up everybody watched the same thing you could go to you could go to school and talk about like what was on batman that night it's like and everybody saw the same things and it became sort of a you know those were cultural touchstones and um and here i am today uh well let's let's take let's Take a step back for a little bit, and uh, you went into the sciences, and you really immersed yourself in these. You had, uh, got a PhD from Cornell, is that true? Yes. Uh, and so you're here, you're well-armed with this science background. At what point, what, what were you doing with that, and then at what point did you make the leap to uh, writing? I, I, was, um, I actually started at Cornell as an art student, and I transferred into engineering when I realized that there was really not much of a... Uh, in terms of job opportunities in medieval studies or French literature. <laughs> and um, so I went all the way through graduate school and I got my PhD. And by the time I got my PhD, I decided I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. And so, and, and it was literally, I started taking courses in history and in comparative literature. And by the time I, I had made a decision, to like not be an engineer, I was like right at the end of my thesis, and, and I figured that my parents would be terribly disappointed if I didn't finish. And so I managed to, to gut it out and, and actually write my dissertation. And when I got off, I proudly told them that I was going to be a writer instead. And, and they were. How did they take that? They were just delighted. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I had I had a friend, actually it was Ron Moore. Ron Moore and I went to college together, and uh, we were friends for many, many, many years. And um, and he is breaking into the business at the time, and he actually, he said, when I got out of school, he said, come on out to Hollywood and be a writer. And I was like, yes, I will do that. It was, and, and I had no idea what that meant, and, and I think ignorance was probably in my favor. And I told my parents, and they were very sweet. And years later, my mother told me this, because I, I just threw some suitcases into my car, and I drove out of, drove uh, you know, from upstate New York to Los Angeles. Years later, my mother said, as soon as my car drove out of sight, she burst into tears. <laughs> but, th but they were incredibly supportive and very sweet, and I was very fortunate 
and I got an internship on Star Trek The Next Generation through the WGA, and uh, that led to uh, me being held on as a science consultant because of my background. That was something that Gene Roddenberry wanted. He had a, it was a position on the show because he wanted the show to have actual, like, a, a real scientific foundation. And, and then that led to writing a script, and then more, and then about a year and a half later I was on staff. So when you were brought on as the assistant, did you know what a TV script looked like? What I, kind of homework had you done at that point? I, the only book I think I ever read about screenwriting was William Goldman's book. Mm-hmm. Which is a great screen. one. It was a great one. Granted. It's not actually about screenwriting. No. It's sort of about the business. <laughs> Uh, Bradley, same question. What was your... <laughs> Down to the young lady? <laughs> oh, no, we build to it. We build, oh, okay. we build to the, a showstopper. Um, what, what's your background as a consumer of entertainment? Well, I started watching Star Trek, and um, then also running around that time was Combat. Both of those shows were had, uh, essentially came to fruition many, many years later, <laughs> as you will know. Um, so that was the kind of landscape. Of course, what I grew up on is like Father Knows Best and My Little Margie and all this other stuff that you get hit with if you got to stay home from school. <laughs> and did you react to these shows as, I mean, as a kid would to be excited that they're on, but did you start to take them apart as a writer would? No, but I did write like fighter pilot stories and stuff like that in mm-hmm. fifth grade. I think there still is one of those around somewhere. Mm-hmm that considering I have piles of paper all over the place, it's probably still in one of those piles. <laughs> but uh, as a career, or that you, people could actually make money doing that, I never associated the two. Really? So when did that realization come? Probably about the time I was in college and realized that pre-med was not for me. <laughs> and that getting out of pre-med was probably a great boon to all humanity. Anybody that I would have treated is probably very thankful, even though they don't know it to this day. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, So how did you start to make the move towards professional writing? Well, I started when I realized I was doing terrible at pre-med. Then uh, I went to New Mexico State and discovered journalism and and actually made some films there. And said, oh, film is fun. Let's do some more of this. And went up to Humboldt State and majored in theater and film. And... uh, then it was like, okay, let's go play with the big boys and see if you've anything, you've really got anything to offer, which was USC at that time. And they pretty much convinced me I didn't. <laughs> and what, what was the atmosphere like there? At USC at that time, um, it was basically, let's see if you could screw your buddies. Really? Everybody there was out to essentially demolish whoever else was in their classes. Now, this may not be true for everybody, but that was my experience there. I understand it has changed. (laughs) So they say. Uh, And you were there as well, David. Is that true? Yes, I was. And is this where you guys met? Um, No, well, not. we were there at the same time, and I I convinced myself that I remember Brad wandering around the department. (laughs) But uh, we actually, there was a crazy method acting teacher named uh, Eric Morris, crazy and brilliant. I should add. Um, and he, he taught directing actors for the screen, and it was very intoxicating. So Brad and I ended up at his class on La Brea, 
which was full of young, attractive actresses, too. That was another <laughs> problem. And, uh, and it was all very primal emotions and so on. And that's where we actually met and started exchanging screenplays. And that's, and, and that's how it started. You guys were reading each other's material. Yes, and then I, I wrote an equity waiver play, Memoirs of an Awkward Lover, which was about my pathetic love life in the 20s. <laughs> Great material for comedy. And I put Brad uh, in it as an actor. And then later Brad wanted to do it as a screenplay, and I was working as a journalist, so I said, sure, go ahead. Mm -hmm. And then he did a draft, and then he showed it to me, and I said, well, that's interesting. What if we did this, this, and this? Let me take a pass. Mm -hmm. So then I took a pass, and then Brad took a pass, and so we wrote a screenplay together without ever really planning to, but that's... He sort of fell into it. That's interesting. And I'll, I'll get more to the specific process of how you guys work together, but is that generally how it still works, or have you refined that or has it changed completely it's it's been it's been refined quite a bit you know over the over the since we've been doing it professionally lots of therapy uh, finding a lot of ways not to do it too oh absolutely <laughs> um and while we're, while we're on the subject tell us about your uh background uh at least as far as growing up and what you were well, I watching have a, i have and a very i have a specific story that affected me i was a um i was a terrible student i was a c and d student uh my third grade teacher said on my report card david does not uh have a basic understanding of the english language and this is going to be a big problem for him i was in the slow reading group uh and i was living in louisville kentucky in 1967 and they had three channels in louisville of television. They were the network affiliates, but they also ran like the hog reports. And uh, so you, ha you would watch whatever was on because there wasn't a lot of choices. So for that reason, it was the, sort of the tail end of anthology television and talent associates, Dan Melnick, David Suskind did a production of, of Mice and Men with George Siegel. It was directed by Ted Kotcheff. I know all this because I went back and watched at the Museum of Television a few years ago, but I was 12 years old and I watched this production, which was very, very faithful to the novel, and it was devastating. I, was, I, I had an emotional reaction to it like I'd never had. And uh, so then next thing you know, I went to the library and I got the book. <laughs> and within about a year, I was writing. Okay. Uh and so that turned into uh, a more specific interest in screenwriting, because that could have gone into novel writing as well. I well, imagine. I was uh, all through grade school, I was writing short stories, and I was making Super 8 movies, slapstick comedies, Roman gladiator movies, uh, you know, science fiction sagas. And I was writing, so I was doing both. I didn't really know for a long time what would be the dominating, you know, I knew from the time, shortly after seeing Mice and Men, that I wanted to be a writer. Um, I wasn't sure, and I liked movies, and I wanted to make movies, and I bought Super 8 movie cameras, and I got all my friends in them, but I wasn't really sure what avenue I was actually going to go down. And you, it seems like you were encouraged in this also, that it wasn't a possibility that was shut down to you. No, uh, I had a father who was a right-wing uh, ex-marine from the Pacific who was in many ways a very brutal father but he loved theater and he loved <laughs> movies 
And he, as a matter of fact, he flew all, he had a couple actor friends, he flew all over the country to see Man of La Mancha, wherever they were in it, because they were in the touring company. And he, we would watch movies, and he would quiz me on all the character actors, and the directors and the writers, and so that was a way for me and my dad to come together, so... That was, a, that was a big... He was the first person I would take my stories to. And he would react to them, and he would critique them. And, you know, my mom was more, oh, that's nice. You know, so... But he... So that was a way to get attention from him um, in a positive way, so... That's really interesting. You often... So he always wanted me to... He was the one who wanted me to be a writer. My, you know, after I got out of college and I went through almost 10 years of working every shit job imaginable, my mom saying, maybe you ought to think about real estate. Or maybe, you know, you could be a partner with your dad in his firm. But my dad was the one who said, uh, no, don't quit. You're going to make it. I won't be here to see it, but you're going to... You're going to make it. And he was right on both those counts. So That's fantastic. Just a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters for your free audiobook download. They have all kinds of terrific books, all kinds of books on screenwriting and television writing, as well as books by some of the people who have appeared on our panels. Again, visit audiblepodcast.com slash nerdistwriters to receive a free audiobook download. Uh, Meredith. Same question. Tell us about your background as a, a consumer. Did you read? Did you write as a youth? Um, you know, it was mostly theater, seeing plays and musicals and being in them in school. And so Where did you grow up? I grew up in Santa Monica, California. <laughs> and um, very strict parents, so TV was like only Friday and Saturday night, so I wasn't a big watcher of TV. Um, but I did theater in high school and college, and I always wanted to be a writer, and I majored in playwriting um, at University of Pennsylvania. I was an English major with a playwriting focus. And then I, I wrote plays, but I did not find a way to make a living. It was very practical. It was like I came out back to L.A., and I worked as an assistant for a lot of years and did plays, but I just again, strict parents, like they were not going to be my patrons, you know, like I had to support myself. And so one hour drama, I just, I found a niche there that it's, it's similar to playwriting dialogue orient, you know, television's dialogue oriented more than film is. And, um, it's just like the right form for me. What else were you able to take from your playwriting background to, especially the very early stages of your television writing career? Um, that's a good question. I think mostly the dialogue, it was um, the sort of accessible uh, language, but also fresh and not, you know, writing dialogue that wasn't the first thing that came to your mind. Um, and TV, you just have limited um, locations, like you can't do sweeping airplane shots and stuff like that. So there's a containment of like, here's the show, it has these three standing sets, make the scenes happen here, similar to plays you know you usually just have one set if you unless you have a bigger budget but so I think that's a similarity and so coming out of uh, college did you return to California to pursue playwriting I went to New York for a year okay. and then I came back here and I just have a very traditional story of how I broke in that's always I was helpful like, I was an assistant for years and I wrote spec scripts for existing shows um, at the time it was like northern exposure picket fences and Beverly Hills 90210 was the show. Well, actually, Northern Exposure gave me my first job, but it was just a one episode 
uh, freelance assignment, and then 90210 um, put me on staff. And was that based on uh, SpecScript or, or the Northern Exposure it was the Northern ex- ex- It was a spec script for Northern Exposure that they ended up making and buying and making, and that was my first assignment. But then the first staff job was on 90210. Um, and what was the assistant job? What, what level of assistant and where was it? Uh, I was a PA on Batman Returns. <laughs> uh, it was my first job. It was cool. Um, uh, what did you have to do? And, you know, this was an immersion into uh, filmmaking. Yeah, sort of... I mean, that was a little off point for ending up in television, but it was fun. Like, I didn't know anything, so I just got lunches and delivered scripts to the executives and went on set and, you know, did menial tasks, but... Just being there was pretty exciting because I had never seen a set or <laughs> stars or, or how it was made. So just being in the room was really valuable to me. And all along, you're working on your spec scripts? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I see. I want to look forward a little bit. I want to talk about where you guys are now. Uh, and Meredith, I do want to start with you on this because you you ran Cold Case in addition to creating the show. Um, but before that, you had worked on NYPD Blue, right? Were you, and what you were a staff writer on there, or you were on the staff of that show? I, yeah, I was okay. on staff for four years, so I had different titles. Uh, and then you did you you did a couple of series after that, right? Or you were on a couple of series. I was on NYPD Blue for four years, and I, I want to make one correction. I did not win an Emmy. I know it says oh, that did? in Wikipedia. I don't know it's why. It's on IMDb, I, I, w- I know. I was nominated, but I did not win. You should have won. Thank you. <laughs> We're disgusted. But I don't want to, like, you know, not say yeah. that. Don't take that away from whoever that. won that year. Um, it was NYPD Blue, but it was the other script. So anyway, it's... But um, I went to ER after that for about a year and a half, mm-hmm. And then I decided to develop, and that's when I did Cold Case. So tell us about the, because NYPD Blue and ER, these are, as I said, these are powerhouse shows, uh, and they were the biggest shows at the time, too. Uh, What were the rooms like on those shows? And you hear a lot about uh, NYPD Blue under Milch and so forth. Uh, I hear less about ER. Uh, So I'm curious how they compared. Uh, They were complete opposites. There was no room in NYPD Blue. No, it was just sort of chaotic, like chasing down David Milch and getting a story, and it was not organized at all. And ER was very orderly. It was very much like there's writers' meetings these three days a week, there's producers' meetings. I mean, it was very um, planned out and methodical and the better way to run a show, I think. (laughs) Uh, So were you able to take things from your experience on ER and apply them to Cold Case? Like what? Yeah, I, both of them I took things from because I think I, I think NYPD Blue is the better written show. So creatively, I took a lot of those lessons as much as I could to Cold Case. But the organization of ER was very was necessary. It's a very big job, and you know, cranking out twenty two episodes in less than a year is very big endeavor and and I like a little more organization if I'm taking on something like that than we had so the I sort of combined the creative from one and the production and practical from the other do you think it was the disorganization on NYPD blue that made it such a creative uh, creatively successful atmosphere I think it was David Milch I think he's pretty brilliant and He's disorganized, and he drives you nuts, but it's worth it because you learn so much, and I think he's one of the best writers in our business. Sure. Um, We'll come back to that. I have have follow-up questions, but think about it. Uh, Gentlemen, 
Tell, <laughs> uh, tell us about how you two work together these days. And um, for example, what, what was the earliest show that you two were working together on? Was that Star Trek? Well, the first first people that ever bought anything was Star Trek, but we didn't actually. We went in and we did the. We we went in and pitched. Actually, David actually has the big story on that one because he had written a book to start with called uh, "If They Move, Kill 'Em: The uh, Life and Times of Sam Peckinpah." And it turns out that uh, Iris Stephen Bear, who was running Star Trek. Deep Space Nine at that time was a big Sam Peckinpah fan, and he inv- invited David down to see the sets and to come to lunch. Um, the so so then we, being a shameless opportunist, I said, "Can I pitch to your show?" And he said, "Sure." And he sent a whole stack of scripts, and I'd never watched the show. <laughs> And so then I watched one, and I said, I called Brad because I knew he was a huge science fiction fan, and we'd done the screenplay together. I said, do you want to try to do this? And uh, I watched an episode, and I go, I don't know what the hell's going on here. What's a, what's a Cardassian? What's a Ferengi? I don't... So we studied it for a month before we went in and pitched. And then we, we did 20-minute long pitches, shaking, you know, with our pages. And Ira Bear sat with us for over two hours, and let us pitch, and he wrote one of them down, one line, on a board, and then he gave us the story, and we sold the story, and then and, that, and then he said, we said, well, we'd love to write the script, the teleplay, and he said, well, you can't write a teleplay because uh, you don't have a sample. We said, well, we have a screenplay. Well, no, I need to see a sample teleplay, like a spec script. So we wrote a spec X Files, and gave it to Ira, and heard nothing for six months, not whether he liked it or. Or didn't like it, and then he called up and said, "Okay, we're giving you a script this year." And then we wrote two scripts, and then we were put on staff. And um, so it started out like really f- like a lark and fun, and then they said, "Oh, this never happens. You guys wrote the best freelance scripts, and we would never even." And then they put us on staff, and then suddenly it was important, and it was fucking hell on earth for several months because. Now suddenly I'm reading Klingon dictionaries and I'm going to the encyclopedia and they didn't like our first couple scripts and uh, they almost fired us. They said, you're going to get one more and uh, if it doesn't work out, then we're going to fire you, but have fun with it. So it seems like you guys had the language of storytelling. You knew how to do make these scripts. You just didn't have the language of the show. Of the mythology of the show. And also, we just got thrown in, like, right away to color drafts. we never done anything like that. And it was like they thought that we should know it. And so, therefore, I felt I should know it. Did anyone ever... Bad. <laughs> did anyone ever slow down and show you guys the ropes? Or well, were, gradually, were yes. Uh, Ron Moore and Ira and okay. Hans Beimler and Renee Chevrolet all at different junctures showed us a lot. And, mm-hmm. But then they tried to... They, they said, you guys... We would write separately, and they said, you guys need to write together in the room, because they knew that that was our process that we wrote separately. Write together in the room together. That's what you need to do. When you say separately, you mean each of you taking a draft? Scenes or storylines. And 
And so we wrote one together and it was a disaster. That was the one where we almost got fired. So then the next one, when they said, have fun with it, we stopped running. We had run into the trap of running in everybody's office and, you know, Ron, what do you think I should do with this scene? And Ron would spit something out while he's interrupted and we'd run off and write that down. And so then that when we were about to get fired, we just went back to, we didn't ask anybody for advice and we just did it our own way which is we, what we've developed now is we outline very detailed together in the room. And then we split up scenes and storylines. And one of us takes, usually if there's A and B story, we'll divide that up or depending on the scenes. Then we each write drafts of that. Then we trade and we rewrite each other. Then we come together in the room for a final pass together. But that, that's been de- developed, that got developed through the firestorm of Star Trek. Have either of you ever tried writing with someone else? No. <laughs> Would you well, like to? I take that back. I did try and do something with my ex-wife, and that may or may not have anything to do with why she's my ex-wife. I got, I got on uh, Battlestar at one point. I had to go up. We were in a frenzy of rewriting, and uh, I ended up in Vancouver with Tony Graffia, who was one of the writers on the show, and we were writing scenes together. I said, Tony, I feel like I'm having an affair. I feel guilty. <laughs> Please don't tell Brad how good it was. <laughs> also, when we were over at CSI, we'd be, uh, Noreen would work with us on some things, and um, that was really uh, a change and wonderful in its own way. And sometimes there'd be like A and B stories, and they'd want uh, us to come in and work with some of the other writers that were there. So, yes, we did. But mostly as a pair. Uh, Noreen, let's talk about uh, that early experience for you, because you, it was a sort of a trial by fire for you also. On uh, Star Trek? Yeah. What, what did you learn there that you've since taken with you? Well, we, um, the, the guy who was uh, the head writer at the time was Michael Piller, and he was the executive producer. And he really was the guy who you know, was in charge of the writing side of things. Star Trek was very odd, because it had a very... It, it was it was like the production was completely separate almost from the writing side of things, and so Michael Piller had um, uh, a writer named Jerry Taylor uh, who was um, uh, sort of I guess I guess her title was either co-EP or supervising producer, and then the staff on the show was Ron Moore, Brandon Braga, Renee Ashbaria, and myself in the last few years of the show, mm-hmm. and and so we were literally only breaking stories and writing scripts kind of 24-7, and Star Trek did 26 episodes a year at that time. Um, but, you know, Michael had a very disciplined way of, of running a break. Um, as, like, as Meredith was saying, it was like lots of organization. That was a highly organized show, and I wish we had had a little bit more of the milch in there, you know, a little, a little of the crazy. Because was this, it a little stifling? Is that yes, one? it was. <laughs> yeah, I said was. that. Not I mean, you. No, I said that. <laughs> um, it was. It was. Uh, it, it, there were a lot of rules on Star Trek. There was a lot of rules as to how the world worked and the technology worked and even how the people worked and how people talked. And it was. It was. And it was. A lot of it was sort of passed down from the way Gene Roddenberry wanted to tell shows. But but we had like. The core staff was, we were all in our like mid-20s, I guess, at that point, or mid to late 20s, 
all of us, that was our first job in the business. And it was like, it was, we would get into lots of arguments with the bosses and we would want to do things and we'd be told, no, you can't do that. Or people don't lie or people don't cheat. And it's like all this stuff that we didn't understand. And, and so it was a frustrating experience that way. But that said, Michael uh, allowed us and, and Jerry allowed us a lot of freedom in the room to argue and, and for everybody to say whatever was really on their mind and how they felt with very little hierarchy. And that was actually an incredibly important thing because when you have a room where people feel like they can speak their own minds, where they're not worried about like somebody saying, no, that's not it, or shut up, or those are, you know, those are the places when you get, I think, the most out of everybody. If, if you really do play, I guess as, as Mike Nichols said, like best idea wins, and where people feel very confident that, that they can say something and not be smacked around for it, um, those are the best rooms and, and where the best stories and best ideas come out of. And everybody, you find on the best staffs I've been on, a piece of everybody is in the stories. I mean, like the, their personalities are in them. And it's not just one person, it's sort of the room. And that's, I think, the ideal that you shoot for. In, in, it's amazing that they had that sort of collaboration. But I would imagine with 26 episodes, there wasn't a whole lot of time. The scripts weren't written collaboratively. No, the scripts were, I mean, it was, it was like a rotation. It was just like a good pitcher's rotation. I mean, it was, you know, everybody breaks the story together, then one person would go out and write, and one person would be coming back in. Right. Um, it was very, very efficient. I mean, and, and if you're lucky enough to have a staff where, where everybody can deliver a workable first draft, that's, your, that's a great place to be. Well, I want to talk about that for a minute. And Meredith, I want to throw it back to you. Um, having run a show and now creating, you know, developing your own series, I'm sure. Uh, what do you look for when you're putting together a staff besides good writers? You know, what's, what's an ideal staff for you? Um, yeah, draft writers, really good writers is obviously the first thing. We should, um, this is actually, that's, I'm glad you said draft writers because that's the first time that's come up here. Um, Talk about what that actually means. I was just picking up on what you said about a good first draft. You know, there's, you know, just sort of being able to deliver a draft on time <laughs> in the voice of the show is the first job, you know, and, and then you go through, at least on our show, we went through a lot of rewrites and a lot of notes, but weirdly, not everybody delivers that draft that you feel like, well, this is workable. Sometimes it's like the voice is, is too unique almost. It's they're not following the voice of the show or, you know, it just doesn't doesn't work for whatever reason. So I just want to fall in love with the writing that I read before anything, before meeting someone. And then you meet them and you just see, you try to assess them and see, could I be in a room with this person every day for a lot of hours? And, um, and a third thing for me is um, being good in the room as far as story, story ideas. Um, that's one of my weaknesses. Is And so I really rely on people that can just like throw out idea after idea after idea and not get too in love with one of them and cling to it if we've already thrown it away. And at least one of those or two of those are essential for me to have in the room. Can, can I interject just one thing? Sure. It's like one of the weird things about television is is it sometimes doesn't reward or it's not the right place for the most idiosyncratic or original voices because to a strange extent, um, I think what television is is like you have to learn how to write in somebody else's voice unless you create the show. Uh, and then you're 
kind of beating up people to tell them how to write in your voice. It's like, but but it's a it's a very difficult skill set to to you know for certain people to really you know get their head around because if you have a very clear voice as a like a playwright I mean I've had I've had experiences with people you know who come out of playwriting and they just simply cannot accommodate to the form it's like on CSI when I came onto that show the the, the voice of that show was this bizarre combination of Anthony Zyker and Carol Mendelson and Ann Donahue and Danny Cannon and and Billy Peterson and it was this weird thing that I had no I I, I that was not me and it was like you had to you had to internalize it and then figure out a way to sort of you know externalize it. How did you go about internalizing it? I I can't give you a recipe <laughs> for that. It's like I, I no, do you I do feel. What did you do? Well, no, but I, I can't I can't really tell you. It's like I think that people who hang around in this business and who've done uh, who've been on a lot of staffs and a lot of shows are better at that than others. I mean, that's just it. It's like some people you find, they go from show to show, and they're always the person who is able to kind of like do an episode of that series. And those are great people to have on a staff. I mean, they really are. Those are the kind of people that you want. And the rest is like casting <laughs> for personalities. I mean, you, it's, like, yeah. it's like baking a great you know, souffle or whatever you like to eat. Um, uh, let's let's talk about the room on uh, Battlestar because I know these guys are interested, and certainly I'm interested. That's a heavy uh, mythology show. Well, you uh, remember what um, you were saying earlier about how Star Trek was stifling. Um, Battlestar was Ron's reaction to that. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> he, when he was on Voyager. Um, saw in Voyager a tremendous potential to tell stories that had never been told on Star Trek before. And um, that was not smiled upon. And he wrote this manifesto saying what, what Star Trek could have been. And um, later, when uh, we were out looking for a job and Ron had just done Battlestar, the, uh, the two-night miniseries, we got invited to come see what he'd done. And we hadn't seen him in several years. And... Uh, Actually, this is, again, one of David's stories. But uh, we got there, and we were going, because both of us had seen Battlestar back when it was in its first incarnation with the Daggett and the same explosion shots for the entire 26 episodes. And, um, and, and you know, it's like on the second episode, we're at the casino planet. And, and so we are kind of figuring, well, this can't be great, but hey, it's Ron, and I want to see what he's been doing, but hey, it's Battlestar, but it's Ron, and uh, finally we arrived at the place, and there was Ron, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, he smiled. Writing partnerships are not like marriages at all. (laughs) He he smiled, and he came over, and he said, oh, oh, gosh, I'm so glad to see you. You're here, and... um, you know, you got to tell me what you think at the end of this. And we went, oh, Christ. <laughs> so we went in, and we sat, and we watched. And after about 10 minutes, David nudged me and said, this is pretty good. And after 20 minutes, we were sold. And then when we came out, and we actually talked to Ron afterwards, um, David said, remember that manifesto? You did it. And that's exactly what Battlestar was. And all of the things, when we came to work on that show... We did our first, our first episode was the fourth episode, and um, we had this scene about, um, and we were writing Star Trek television at that point, and we had Adama, you know, uh, Starbuck had essentially killed Adama's youngest son, and um, 
And then she confessed it to him. And we had the basic television. Well, it's, it's a hero like Star Trek. He understands this is Cisco, this is uh, Janeway, this is all of these people. And Ron went, he said, uh, I, I think I want to take a crack at the scene. And that's where the words, get out of this office while you can still walk, came from. And we knew we were in a different world altogether. Um, Ron loved to be surprised. The room itself was very much as they've described the ideal one. Everybody had a voice. There was absolutely no hierarchy. And when Ron was in there, he'd be, you know, he'd sit there and he'd moderate it and he'd have ideas. And then when it became Mark for Haydn, the same thing would happen. Everybody spoke. Nobody felt like that a bad idea was not worth talking about because the bad ideas led to good ones. And um, so it was essentially run the way Star Trek was run, except with a lot more looseness and a lot more um, go for it. And were you guys able to throw yourselves into that, or did you have to unlearn some of the uh, Star Trek? We unlearned it very, very quickly. (laughs) It it was exciting. I remember we did a... Uh, a scene where we did a scene where where Starbuck was flashing back on Adama's son who she had a relationship with so we just did it as a standalone flashback flashback here's the whole scene and Ron was said no why don't you break it up and and put it through the episode you know in flashes you get little pieces of it and that was shedding it was to me it was like we, we can do that and I was thrilled by that because my favorite American movies of the 60s and 70s and stream of consciousness and I remember when we did the final episode I showed a friend of mine a feature editor the funeral sequence he goes so we have flashbacks within flashbacks and I go yes <laughs> and uh, so it was uh, he quickly showed us that we could kick the door open and forget all these kind of rules that we learned at Star Trek and I mean the great quote that he had at our final retreat was you could there were no limitations of Battlestar you could hit that ball as far as you wanted to the only limitations were your own your own ambitions and imagination and and he encouraged everybody to do that so it it became thrilling it became and it was it was a very tight staff it was the best staff I've ever been on it was very competitive but it was competitive in a very healthy way because oh my god that last Michelangelo script was fucking good I want to do better but it wasn't like trying to subvert anybody nobody was none of, and that I find comes from the top it comes from the executive producer who does the hiring because all the other in addition all the other things people talk about really good showrunners seem to have an instinct for picking people that are not political that want everybody's there to make the best show possible. When you're on a staff like that, then you have a crack at really making a great show. This was, um, I liken this to being, you know, having a really, really great coach who wants, who challenges you to be the best that you can be and to go further with anything you can think of. Can you go further? And he also had the confidence to know if you went too far, he could pull it back at the last second if he needed to. But yeah, he just wanted to see where you were going. And Noreen was a lot like that too. Tell us about that. <laughs> actually, right. what, what happened? I, <laughs> uh, what I'd actually like to hear about is uh, how long were you on CSI? Uh, eight years. Eight years. Tell us about uh, 
working on a procedural, because that is the most procedural procedural around, uh, and highly successful. There must have been a lot of pressure on it. What was generating stories like? What was working stories like? Yeah. You know, gen generating stories actually on, on CSI wasn't difficult because, you know, sadly there are people who have no... They seem to find lots of inventive ways to murder each other on a, on a pretty routine basis. So we would draw from, you know, published accounts, actual cases, strange forensic techniques, you know, weird characters that people would come in from. But, but it was, generating stories was actually not the problem on that show. The, the problem was procedural television gets a bit of a bad rap because people sort of associate it with a lack of character. And and I think that the best procedural shows are ones in which, like, for example, on CSI for me, it was if the forensics and the forensic investigation of the show could un, could, could unfold character and reveal psychology, which in turn would suggest other ways of investigating and lead to more forensics. That nice little feedback loop, it, that's sort of classic drama. That's like, you know, character drives action and action reveals character. That, that, that goes all the way back, you know, and it's... Um, that's what we, sh you know, that was that's that's what we shot for. Um, we didn't always hit it, and CSI because it was so digestible as entertainment, um, we could really get away with sort of an, an average kind of a show. But but when we really hit it properly, it was incredibly satisfying. I mean, there's a reason that crime dramas and cop dramas have the longevity that they do. There's something about them that really kind of draws you in. I mean, and, and on CSI, it was. You know, this sort of baked-in philosophy that if you had very intelligent, objective people who were very smart and interpreted things properly without being, you know, deluded by lies and, and the things that people would say, that they could eventually arrive at the truth. That's a, very, that's a very powerful message, and philosophically, it was sort of behind the appeal of the show. But coaxing that out into drama, that was both satisfying from a plot standpoint, which, you know, CSI was extraordinarily complex from a plot standpoint. We used to joke that part of the reason it would repeat so well is that people would figure out what happened the first time around. And, um, um, but when we could actually, you know, get to something deeper through that vehicle, it was very satisfying. What was it like, from a practical standpoint, breaking those stories? Uh, they seem, again, incredibly complex. Extraordinarily difficult. I mean, it was, you know, we spent a lot of time in the room. The breaks were very, very complicated. And you had stories that turned on incredibly tiny elements. Um, and I don't just mean small things, but it was like minute observations and very fine shadings of interpretation. Um, so breaking those stories was very, very difficult. I mean, we, we would typically take, I would say, maybe hmm, about a week or more on average to break a story fully. Uh, Meredith, I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to add one more thing yeah. about act, actually when we were working on CSI and Noreen would take his pass at stuff, it was always about adding more character to it. And every line, it, we, you'd come back and see that the way he'd re reworked a scene and it was, okay, well, we had this and we had the elements of the investigation out there and all of the conclusions and he would try and spin a line more, well, what does that say about that person? And what does it say about the person making that observation? And it, it really was fine shade, fingertip stuff, as Ira used to say. Yeah.
Yeah, I wanted to get into that a little bit more in talking about cold case, uh, because you came from this background of a procedural that, you know, NYPD certainly is a procedural, but it has very soap opera elements in a great way. Uh, and ER, the same kind of thing. What was your goal in creating cold case? And did you feel like you were locking yourself into any kind of procedural? And I say that with a positive spin. <laughs> No, I think we ha were lucky that we had a show that was kind of a combination of procedure and character um, because what we did was in the present we were solving a mystery in a procedural way, but they were cold cases, unsolved cases. So they could be a two-year-old case or they could be a 30-year-old case or they could be a 50-year-old case. Um, and we told the story of the person who died um, in flashback. So we could do things like go back to 1968 Philadelphia in an underground gay club where a kid got beaten to death and see him in the past and then meet his mother in the present and vice versa. So there's all this emotional character stuff that you had a lot of real estate. Those scenes were nine scenes per episode. So it was a lot of real estate to tell a story about anyone you wanted to. You could just make up a story. But at the same time, we had our five core detectives who were, you know, going around interviewing people and getting forensic evidence, et cetera. So for me, that was a nice combination of both. And was that, I know there's been some, a lot of talk about the creation of the show, and I don't want to get into any of that, but uh, in creating the show, was that something you were aiming for, something that would kind of tread that line? Uh, I guess I'm asking, was that on purpose to be satisfying to you as a writer and for the mass television audience? Um, I think that was sort of a lucky result. I think at the time when you're creating a show, a big thing is like, how can I create a show that will have lots of story possibilities? It has a very deep well that you can still have stories in season five in success. So my answer to that was, well, if it's historical, if it can be something from 10 years ago or 30 years ago, that's tons of stories, that's tons of eras and subjects. And then I think the result as we started going was like, wow, we could write anything we want, which is very liberating. Like any interest you have, you can write about that if you can figure out a murder associated with it. Um, and it was just, it kept it interesting because you were writing a totally new story within your your procedural episodic structure. Let's talk just briefly, and then I'll turn it over to questions from you guys, um, but about your relationship with the network uh, on Cold Case specifically. Uh, were they supported from the beginning? How did it go? Did you develop with the network? Um, they were wary in the beginning. They were worried, I think. Um, I think they are with all new shows, but I had never run a show before, and I was female, and I was like 32, and they, I, I don't know, I think they did not think I could actually run a show, so it was very difficult. The first summer, when you're making episodes, but you haven't aired yet, so you don't know if your show's going to do well, they, they were very, um, they were doubtful or doubting and very micromanaging and I think that's a very typical story on any new show but I had the feeling it was um, a lot more than than others <laughs> in my case. It felt that way anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what about you guys and again I'd, I'd be curious about Battlestar because this was sort of a big undertaking for sci-fi, even as a successful show, it seemed like it had a lot bigger budget than a lot of their other things. Was there a lot of uh, involvement from the network? 
Or did you guys not even see that as, as writers on it? Well, part of what Ron and David Icke did was kept a lot of that off of us. Um, yes, they were trying to micromanage the show um, and in the sense that we'd be told, okay, well, we'd like a comedic episode. We would like to see a basketball game or something like that. And uh, so we'd kill somebody. And <laughs> there, were, there were large fights um, that I've heard about, but I can't really speak to them because I wasn't there. But yeah, and um, there were, in fact, the first episode, 33, um, New York did not want to air that as the first episode of the show. And since the thing is actually serialized, and you know, that was going to cause a lot of problems. And it was largely because uh, Ron had written it too, uh, too dark. And we have a, a ship that follows us around, and every 33 minutes, if it shows up, then the Cylons show up to try and blow us up later. And then we decide, oh, it's that ship. And then when it shows up, we blow it up. And there are the people on board and the windows looking at the friendly fighters when they blow them to pieces. That seemed a little dark. <laughs> so um, negotiations happened, more negotiations, lots of screaming and, and stuff like that back and forth. And I'm being metaphorical. I didn't actually hear anybody lose their tempers, um, at least when anybody was watching. And um, so now there's, at the end, the ship is empty, it seems, and it's carrying nukes, headed directed directly for our fleet, and it's a no-brainer to shoot it down. And uh, we didn't feel good about that, and so when we did the follow-up episode, we left the follow-up episode exactly as it was when uh, Lee is suffering from post-traumatic post stress from shooting down all of these innocent people, and we carried on. But that involved a lot of negotiation. Uh, it was uh, the the show was able to maintain its edge in, in large part because David Ike and Ron Moore fought as united front. They they wouldn't allow themselves to be separated from each other as networks sometimes try to do. And uh, I know there was probably threatening of quitting a, a few times, but um, so they're 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 maintaining a solid front. And then the show getting rave reviews enabled us to survive the the network note process. And that actually makes me think of, and, and I want to get to you in a second, Noreen, but uh, personally, between you two, uh, as a partnership, what happens when you disagree? Well, outside of the, you know, the... Brad's wife could tell you. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it gets noisy. Uh, sometimes the noisy... Um, we have a deal in the sense that's, that uh, is that both of our names go on the script, so we both got to like it. So it's not a matter of who shouts the loudest, gets their scene the way they want it. It's not a matter of, I give you this one if you give me that one. It's a matter of, okay, I heard all the reasons you wrote it that way, and here are all the reasons I wrote it this way. What is the third way that can accommodate all of those problems? And, and solutions to that. And those are really tough to find, but they're always better than the first two. Yeah, some, some of our best scenes and moments come after a big fight like that and finding the third way that, yeah, we have a rule. You don't go back. We don't get to go back to the way I had it because that's what I want. Can you think of anything in particular? Can you think of a specific example? Can you think of any specific example? <laughs> I'd have, I'd have to think for All right, think about it. Uh, Noreen, I want to talk again about um, CSI and the relationship to the network. Because, again, as I said, I think 
you know, I would imagine there was some pressure on the show as the number one show for so long, and still is. And uh, as a showrunner, what was the relationship like with the network? The relationship we had with CBS was very cordial, but I mean, it was. Uh, when I came on the show, it was I guess the end of season two, and the show was kind of you know blowing up, and they pretty much left us alone. I mean, we did not get a lot of notes on our scripts. We did not get a lot um, of do this, don't do that. I mean, very very little. But you know, at a certain point, no matter what network you're at, if you hit a certain level as a hit, they sort of go hands off because it's like they they don't understand the process. You know, and they don't understand what makes a hit or what makes a flop because if they did, all they would make are hits. And and so if something is actually working, they tend to go, okay, you guys know what you're doing. And I mean, that was, you know, um, you know, by season, by seasons three, four, five, I mean, that we just weren't really having that, you know, there wasn't an issue. In was there anything inside the writers camp themselves uh, that you guys felt? Did you put pressure on yourselves? Oh, we put that. That's a whole other story. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> Let's get to that's, that. that's a completely different thing. I mean, it's like, but that's, that's a question of, of how much do you want to challenge yourself going forward? It's like, personally, I always felt like we, Carol and I, uh, Carol Mendelson and I always tried very, very hard to, to, to continue to change up how we did stories and the kinds of stories that we did. I mean, Law and Order, as an example, that show kind of stayed exactly the same for a very, very long period of time. And CSI, we tried very hard to to do black comedies, to, to figure out different ways of doing shows, spending half an episode with the villain, I mean, every year, and, and changing it up cinematically and technique-wise. And I think we, we did, we tried harder than we had to. Um, but I think it was part of the reason the show stayed as, as fresh and as strong as it did for as long as it did. I mean, I, I was always a big fan of The X-Files. And I felt like that show did the same thing. They, they always tried to up it year after year after year. And so that was something I, I was, you know, kept my eye on very strongly. That's a, that's a great thing to be able to do. Did you have the same experience uh, on your own show where... You were reaching, and in what ways were you reaching to do something beyond what the pilot was or what the first half dozen episodes were? Um, again, I think we had a unique uh, situation where they were just because they were they were so different week to week that we we did do some experimentation with different kinds of episodes, but the structure. It was often the same, but it was just so different because the story was like the era, the you know everything was was quite different week to week. But I I agree with that. I think it's you know it can be successful either way. But um, if you're creative and someone who wants to keep on being challenged, if it's easy to just sit in a rut and do the same thing all the time, but you're like artistic soul dies, you know? It does. It gets it really, really boring. It I mean, really and does. that was, it was partially, yeah, just for yourself, you want to try some new stuff. Was there anything, and I'll open this up to all of you guys, and then we'll, we'll take questions from the crowd, but were there episodes that you wanted to do of anything that you worked on that you never got to do? I'm sure there were. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are millions of ideas coming through the right. Not on CSI. Room, I think we you got to do everything. <laughs> Nobody told me no. I mean, it was really funny. It was actually one uh, David and Bradley and I did an episode which was which was kind of an homage to Star Trek because we did an episode that was set at a science fiction convention, and it was 
the we did flashbacks, but they were it was this weird little romantic comedy with our second tier guys, which I would do once a season, and one of the guys finds out that this other tech in, in, his, in the lab, they both love this old science fiction show. And we did a total riff on the, the original Star Trek series and kind of riffed on the episodes. But he kept imagining during, during the show, as they were dealing with a murder, um, like he was kind of Captain Kirk getting the hot alien babe like over and over and over through the episode. And it was just charming and funny. And, and I just would kid these guys the entire time. It's like, nobody's telling me no yet. <laughs> and, and it's like, and I, it, was, it was the strangest thing. But it, it turned out to be a very fun, charming episode of the show. It was still a murder mystery. It was still forensic. But it was a completely different kind of a way at it. That, that's, that's one of the things I loved about working with you on that show, Noreen, was we pressed, we, we pushed the limits of the box and stretched the box and subverted the genre. And that is a perfect example. And what he was really good about as a showrunner was Brad pitched the idea of how about murder at the Star Trek ride in Vegas. And then that became, you said, science fiction convention. And then what Noreen did was he protected Brad and I from all the internal pressures in the show, which there were many, and external pressures, and we sat watching Star Trek episodes for maybe almost two weeks with Sarah Goldfinger, and then we go, Noreen, come here, watch this scene. And, and, and from watching the scenes and talking about it, you suddenly said, well, what if they start to have fantasies about it? And the whole thing broke open. But he created a space that this allowed us to do that yeah. and, and feel like we were playing and not worry... And, and it created this totally unique episode. And that's a really a skill as a showrunner or a manager where you, you allow your writers to feel safe to create. And um, This you know. bleeds into production as well. Because uh, when we were doing that episode, all of a sudden our makeup guys and our prop guys and our camera guys were now doing a space show. Not only that, they were doing a space show from the 60s and one from the... Uh, you know, from 20, what, 20, 2009. And so they're coming up with head makeups and they're coming up with a hair piece, I guess, was Tom Hanks, some $10,000 wig that the guy was wearing for, that uh, Wally was wearing for the Captain Kirk. And, uh, and you got to see them light up and push what they could do, which was something I didn't see. They'd been doing the same show, you know, pushing it as in the murder mystery for, for a long time. They weren't doing outer space. And it was really fun to see these really these guys actually kick the doors open on that one. I would say that extended to the acting. Again, in that episode specifically, I was seeing a lot of Liz Vassie in the month before you guys started shooting that, and she would not shut up about Star Trek. Because she went and did all her homework and was watching and was so excited to do this episode. <laughs> and we made great. a film semiotics professor the murderer. <laughs> that's only because Spoiler. of him that that was possible. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, just very quickly, Meredith, uh, now that we've touched on production, was there anything you guys weren't able to do or, or a time that you were able to really stretch the production and, you know, in an episode that maybe you're, you're very happy with how that went? Uh, I was, like, constantly amazed how much they could pull off. I mean, we would, like, we would literally go back to the 20s and do, like, a Great Gatsby episode, and they would deliver, and they'd build the set and the costumes, and then the next week they'd have to tear it out down, and we were, like, at Woodstock in the 60s, and they were amazing. It's amazing, like, what people can do if you challenge them and 
you know, the, there are limits of budget and everything, but the only thing I always, I wanted to do, we did an episode about kind of the dawn of HIV and AIDS, which was about 83, I guess, and um, the flashbacks all took place then in, in, the, in the early 80s, but the present day story was this man was getting married to another man, but he wanted to solve the murder of his, of his lover that had died back then. And so we kind of explored the, the gay cancer and that whole era when it came into our realization. And we wanted to end the show with the kiss at the wedding because everyone went to the wedding and they would not let us. They, so it's, that's one thing about television, especially network, is they just, they're very strict about standards and practices and, you know, they're the boss. And so I literally like called Les Moonves and I was like, I'm calling you for a kiss. <laughs> and he just wouldn't do it. <laughs> I, just one thing I, as I would like to say about Cold Kiss that I always admired was, was both the production and the casting. Yeah. Is your casting people were amazing how they would find the 20 year old version and then the 40 year old version. It was like, it was extremely impressive. And every once in a while on CSI, we would do, we would do period, the nightmare, and the hellacious yelling from the line producer over how expensive it was. It was like the fact that you guys did that week to week was amazing. And from a production value, too, that show, when they did the flashbacks, it never felt like a costume party. You yeah. know, like they really yeah. lived in it. It's pretty yeah, impressive. All right, let's take some questions from you guys. Please remember that questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. <laughs> Um, I was just wondering if you could speak about the difference between breaking a serialized story arc versus breaking a single episode arc. Sure, anyone. Well, when we do, uh, when we were doing Galactica and when we were doing doing um, Falling Skies, what we want to do is um, at the beginning of the season is we lay out where are our characters now and where do we want them to be at the end of however long it was that we've got to tell the story. Like Ron would go 10 episodes out. Um, Falling Skies only has 10 episodes. And then you put down every character and what you want them to go through. And then you figure out, okay, now, and this includes like the aliens, what is, what is their agenda? What are their plans? So in a, in a weird way, it's like breaking one really humongous episode. Because um, once it's, you know, it's up there on, and it keeps getting revised as we go, because you'll find, make discoveries as you go along. Um, and like suddenly characters that we thought were going to last to the end of the season are dead by episode three. Things like that happen. You have to readjust, so you have to keep doing this on the fly. But you, so you got to leave enough room to be able to alter that if something better comes along. But you do kind of have to know where you're tacking for, and that was mostly about character. And then you figure out the episodes you needed to tell those stories. Um, in episodic, it's different. <laughs> Do you guys want to speak to that? Because you were able to do some serialized stuff in these very episodic shows, uh, which was really interesting. How'd you pull it off? Um, I would say that standalone episodes are much easier to break than serial. Um, you just, it's self-contained. It's, it's one thing, and I'm, I'm writing on this show Homeland right now, which is going to be on Showtime in the fall, and it's serialized, and I'm so dependent on 
the people who are writing before me and after me. I keep rereading all the rewrites and we keep having to confer with each other and we all need to be in the room for everything because if you miss out, you're kind of lost. Whereas if I'm writing a cold case episode, it's just one story and it's mine and you guys can read it later, but it's it's much more you know dependent on everyone else on staff if you're on a serialized show. Yeah, it, it's um, it's challenging. I mean, on, on CSI, one season we did a, a continuing storyline where there was a killer who made miniatures of a crime scene and left them at the actual crime scene. And that was arced over about, I think, about five or six episodes over the course of the season. And that was a, a particularly challenging way to tell a story. First of all, CSI had never done it before. It had been purely episodic, really, uh, almost from the very beginning. Um, but what it required was was a way to make even those arced stories um, individual episodes that could stand alone by themselves. And so that was challenging from both um, you know, a storytelling and a production standpoint. That's one um, similar with Battlestar, even though we weren't all that successful at it, uh, was you did want to have that each episode have a self-contained arc, something that you could watch and go, I had a, a satisfying 41 minutes amongst all these 20 minutes of commercials that that uh, dramatically gate, took me somewhere. Okay, and I want to come back tomorrow to find out what happened, but inside there, I did get some satisfaction. Yeah. Um, I guess I... Uh, two questions uh, for all of you. Um, first of all, as far as... I know you, you left your show to develop... You left the show you were on and then you developed. I'd love to know if you guys developed original shows while you were on staffs of other shows, if you like that or don't like that, um, or if you just primarily prefer to staff. And the other question is also just about, for those of you who have run shows, and now you're working on other people's shows, do you like to purposely take a break, or it's just because your show did, your original pilot didn't get to the point that you wanted to get to? Does, does that end? <laughs> Um, I let's see the first question was I prefer to develop while I'm not working on another show but a lot of people do both I think probably more people do both than the other way um, and I don't know as far as pilots pilots are such a crapshoot that you're really lucky if it all goes right you know if you get a series on it's it's because it's good but it's also because you're very lucky and I've written four pilots since Cold Case, and one got made, and three didn't. And I'm on this show, Homeland, now that a friend of mine is on, and there's just five of us, and all five of us have run shows. And but there's one guy who's running this show, and we're just working for him, you know, because it's just nice to be on a show with smart people and you know be working. But you know, if you let like ego get in the way, then you're just gonna like sit back and write pilots all the time, and you may never get another one on. Running a show is a very consuming experience. You you sort of, it's kind of what you eat, breathe, and sleep for. And, you know, I'm not even going to say 10 months out of the year. It's probably closer to like 11 and a half months out of the year just because you're finishing shows and then you're dealing with the logistics of the next season. I mean, on CSI, I was lucky if I got maybe, you know, two weeks or, you know, 10 days off between seasons because I would write typically the season finale and the season opener. And it's um, it's really fun. <laughs> it's uh, I, I really enjoy that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of work. EPing somebody else's show, which is what I'm doing this year, 
is somewhat relaxing in retro <laughs> in comparison. It's like it is. It's I don't have to take it home. I can come in. I can run the room. It's fine. But it's a totally different experience, and um, uh, it's kind of a nice break. Actually, um, I probably will be tired of that in about. <laughs> Another six months, but <laughs> we shall see where it goes from there. Let me ask you, what, what brought you to Grimm? Because I would imagine you had a lot of opportunities coming into this season. You know, it's funny. I, I, I wasn't entirely sure I was going to go on a show this year, um, but I, I had friends who have, had worked with uh, David Greenwald before, and I was a big fan of Buffy. And yeah, yeah, and these and, guys hate Buffy. Uh, I know, I know, because it was so bad. Um, no, I mean, and and um, uh, it was literally that. It was just like I was, I was a little bit bored because I had done a year of development, and I really do like being in production. I mean, I actually like making things, and um, I, and I had no desire to just you know kind of twiddle my thumbs in another you know season of development solely. Um, and so I met with those guys and just kind of was like, it's like, Hey, this could be fun. It was literally, you know, that, that kind of a calculation. Uh, same question. I'm curious how you guys got involved with your current show with falling skies. Oh, we did the dance of the, uh, you know, the, the, the look, the staffing dance, that, that ritual that happens and went out and met everybody. And we had no idea that there were that many everybody's out there <laughs> until our agent said, you know, you don't know anybody in this industry. <laughs> And so they took us all out there, and we did meet a lot of people and read a lot of scripts, and uh, we knew which we liked, and turns out that they liked us, and uh, so we finally got an offer and, and, um, and took it. And was Homeland, you said you had, uh, you had friends on the show? Already, is that what brought um, you yeah. in? Or was it um, Chip Johansson is someone I worked with a long time ago, and we just shared office space. And he called me up, and he's like, "Hey, we only have four writers on the show, and we need someone, and we need a woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> and what are you doing?" And I was like, "I'm not really looking for a job, but I was sort of like development can be kind of boring because it takes a long time." And I was like, "Yeah, it's like why not? They're on." We're on episode six. There's only eleven episodes, and it's totally fun. Like these guys are great guys, and. It's good. Had you been developing for network before? This this isn't your first cable show, is it? I've developed for HBO and Lifetime, but they didn't go. The pilots didn't go, and I wrote two network pilots since Cold Case. Uh, just one other thing to mention about this is I've noticed over the years that television writers tend to be far more gregarious than feature writers. It's like, and you, you, you miss the companionship of a good room. It's like feature writers, they spend a lot of their career kind of in quiet places alone and, you know, filled with self-hatred or coffee or whatever the fuck they're doing. But, but TV writers and people who really love television, you miss just that, the five, six, ten other people around you who are really smart and bright and throwing great ideas on the board and together creating stuff. I was in a little bungalow on the CBS Radford lot for a year of development. I was There were days I wanted to shoot myself because it was like, it was too goddamn quiet. And it was just like you get, you get energy from people when you're around them and it's fun and especially when it's a nice working experience and you're with good people. There's like nothing that's more enjoyable. You're literally being paid to spend half of your day just dreaming up stories and putting them on the board. And if, you, if, if that's why you're in the business, and I think that's why a lot of us get into this business, that's super fun. <laughs> the other thing about television is they make it 
they will make it. In fact, in two weeks, they are making it. So you better have it ready, and you better have it good. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, as he's saying, inside a room is kind of like playing with really good musicians. When you're sitting there, and you'll, you'll toss a lick out, and it'll come back to you with some flourishes on it, and then you want to stack on that, and then the drummer hits something. You're, and it is, it is a tremendous rush to be in a good room. And, you're, and it keeps you on your toes. And what's also great about a really great staff, we had to write an episode where one of the uh, Colonel Ty, if any of you follow Battlestar, has to tell Adama that he's a Cylon. And <laughs> I'd never really had a life experience like that. <laughs> and Brad, being the generous partner that he was, was, said, why don't you take the first pass at that scene? And I, I was totally fucking blocked on it. And first draft, we tried to avoid it. We sh- he starts to tell him we cut away, and then Adama's ballistic, and, you- and Ron's going, I think you're missing the moment. <laughs> so then what I ended up doing was running into every... I caught Mark Verheiden on his way to the car. I don't know what the fuck to do with this scene. I don't know. What and he spit out some stuff. He goes, well, you know... Uh, he goes, you know... He, maybe he says, you know, I've known you for years. You had hair when I first saw you, you know? And he gave me a few little tidbits on it, and it's like I could see that. And then I went to Michael Taylor's thing, you know? And, and he said, well, maybe Ty has to, like, throw him against a wall and say, I've been fooling you for months, and I've known. And, and like, little, they each gave me little pieces of the scene, and suddenly I could see how to write the scene. And that's, that's what's great about a staff where you can, a really good staff where, Everybody helps you. You can run into an office and say, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And they throw out some ideas and, and, and you build on it. Uh, we have time for a few more. Yeah. Uh, I just wondered if you'd talk a little bit about the uh, dealing with the fans. There's a lot of time fans will have an idea of what the show should be. And, of course, you want to spin it into a different direction. Do you ever say, well, we shouldn't go too far because we might lose our core audience? Or is it just, we're just going to go this direction and the people who love the show will follow us? Is there ever that idea that you have to, you have to think about that? How many fans are in here? <laughs> um, that became a factor... Um, I, I can't really say that it did become a factor other than if they're expecting it to go this way and we hear a lot of people saying they're expecting it to go that way, it's a good barometer of you shouldn't. And uh, because after all, you're just delivering something expected. So, and we did get, I think Mark Verheiden kept getting emails for the fourth season of Battlestar Galactica from somebody that said, I know how this should end. You should hire me and then I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, he's probably still getting those emails. But um, in terms of the fans and their expectations, we love the fans. Um, And we listen to in the sense of, of, uh, you know, we want to know what they're thinking. But as Ron did at the very, very beginning of Battlestar, and we ripped off shamelessly for uh, Space Oddity, he went to Galacticon and he showed what he was planning to do with this reimagining and the fans booed they hated it they they were obsessed with what you know starbucks shouldn't be a woman they explained all of their their problems to to ron and um and then they said well now that you've heard all of these things uh mr moore is you know are you going to take this into account and ron said no what you saw is what the show is (laughs) 
Thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you guys would talk a little bit, both from the perspective of showrunner and writers who have staffed, about the staffing process, what it's like to go through scripts, what you're looking for. Like you said, you're looking for the ability of someone to nail that draft, whether it's the first, third, fourth, whatever. And having started out specking Star Trek and then moving on to things like Falling Skies, I'm just curious what it's like to be both looking for a staffing job and looking for writers to fill them. I can speak to that a little. Um, the, the staffing meeting in this business is one of the most awkward and and unsatisfying experiences you can have. It's like what it typically the way it works is somebody will read a script and respond to the material, and then you come in and you meet with the showrunners. And usually the meeting goes something like this: It's like, "Wow, we really liked your sample. Wow, I really like your show. Wow, you seem like a really good person. Wow, you seem like a really good person too." And then they leave and then you go well, should we hire this person and spend 12 hours a day with them it's 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 retarded i mean it's like it's really it, and and i actually got really tired of it on csi because it was we would do this every season and it was it was like you know hit or miss i might as well have been throwing a dartboard so so i think it was i don't know it's like season maybe six or something i said Fuck it. I'm 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 meeting you for drinks at the Polo Lounge and I would sit down with people for two, three hour meetings and I just met people like that because we could actually talk about writing. I could see it, what it would be like to spend time with them, get a little liquor into them and see how they react. And it's like it, it was it was a much more difficult and time consuming way of doing things, but the results were far better because I got a sense of of the personality of the person who would actually be on the show because it is we don't like to talk about it this way but it's it's getting a staff together is like casting you are casting chemistry when you put people together on a staff they have to mesh together or else they won't work together there are shows what you could put five brilliant writer, producer, showrunner, show creators together and have a disaster on your hands. It's like because they just simply won't work together. And you have to be able to gauge it and you have to be able to figure out, well, am I going to get a romantic kind of a story from that person? Am I going to get an epic storyline from that person? And that guy is going to give me a technical something. That's what you have to understand. And I, it takes time to do that. And, and most staffing meetings are just simply inadequate for, for what they are actually intended to accomplish. I know when Narain hired us, our interview lasted considerably longer than, hi, how are you? Um, we'd known Narain since, uh, geez, he was working across a lot from us when we were at Henson for the same bosses that we had on a different show. And uh, we'd known him because he was a friend of Ron's for a long time. And eventually we did, uh, we got together on a project that, that he was interested in doing but didn't have the time to do. And so we had meetings on that. So he knew us. And when we came begging at the end of, Star of, of Galactica, say, we're out of work. Do you need any help on CSI? <laughs> he already knew who we were and kind of what we did. Um, yeah, it's it's a hard process. Um, from the writer seeking a job point of view, it's basically, it can start as early as March, I guess, for returning shows. Um, and then there's a real rush in April and May because the, um, the upfronts are mid-May and that's when they know the new shows are what they're going to get, you know, what they're going to put on. And, I mean, I don't know how to do it either. I basically find the scripts, I like the writing, I meet the person, I tell them very um, 
bluntly about how we work and how much work it is and you're expected to be on the set for 12 to 14 hours every day on your episode and all the stuff that might not work for your life you know and um and then I do a lot of if they've been on shows before I call the other showrunners and and kind of see well why did they only last one year on your show you know and like really try to get the answer about like can this person can I sit in the room with them? Will they be helpful? Are they, you know, what, what are the hangups that there are any? And, you know, and then just try it out. And unfortunately, it doesn't work half the time. It, you know, it's a, it's really funny because it's like if you've ever had a job interview for like any other job, they actually ask you questions about how to do the job. But <laughs> for a staff position, you don't actually have that experience. Like I remember years ago, I was I, I interviewed for a job at Hewlett Packard when I was in graduate school, and they said, "Okay, so." Why don't you show me how a CMOS field effect transistor works? And so, like, okay, okay. And so, like, I just kind of like, you know, do the diagram and everything. You never get this in a, in a in an interview for like staffing. So this scene sucks. How would you fix it? <laughs> that never happens. Yeah. It's like it's like it's literally like I, I kind of feel like I should just have a really bad scene handy and just go like, hey, what do you think? Take a shot at it. Come back in an hour and then we'll talk. It's like <laughs> it's like it may not. It would probably be a good idea. Um, um, that's exactly what we were, um, and Rami Abishan, who's running uh, Falling Skies now, w when he went in to interview with DreamWorks, he has essentially had a couple of days or was it hours to figure out where he wanted to take season two of the show. And he had to explain that to him. When we were in this period of, uh, of being out of work, we um, went into one show where they said, well, if we gave you this season, where would you go? And I think we'd seen two episodes of the show at that time. Um, so sometimes you get that question. But a lot of other questions that you're figuring out when you're there is, is this guy going to be a fascist dictator boss? Is he going to keep you here until, I mean, you know, because he's got no life? Do they have a, a home they want to go home to? Very important question. But, but it's also, I mean, I, I, we always try to go into the interview with two or three episode ideas. You know, have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about, you know, and that, that definitely, I, I think a lot of showrunners look for that. They don't want just happy talk. So, you know, you always try to show that you have some ideas. And, uh, and, and that, that's another important element. If you're going in to be the person interviewed, you know. We would prep and we would find out where we were going. We would watch the shows. We would read the scripts and we would prep, you know, that we're going to see these people, know who they are, where they came from. And other stuff that they've done, if you didn't particularly like what they were doing now, and um, and find stuff that you could you could find good stuff in the show, and find ways that you would take it to your own sensibilities and explain all of that. Yeah, know all the characters' names in the pilot. You know, be able to talk about their journeys, and then say, well, what if this happened to that character? You know, you, pre you you do prep for it, and then and and dem do your best to demonstrate in the meeting that you've done that. Yeah, that's, I, I would absolutely second that is uh, do the homework. You know, it's easy to waltz into a room and either be charming or pretend to be charming, but be able to talk about the show, I think, goes so far. Absolutely. Question over here. Don't touch it. <laughs> yes, hello. Um, I just had a question in terms of writing specs and pilots when you're trying to break in. I mean, I've heard one writing panel say that 
these days people just mainly want to read pilots, but they won't hire someone if they've written a spec? And should there be some type of counterpoint between them? Like if your pilot is sci-fi, would you not write a Falling Skies spec? Or would you try to do a, proced you know, a procedural and then say a sci-fi to show that you have range? I don't really care. I mean, it's like it sort of depends on the type of show you're you're going into. I think these days people tend to, maybe in general, like original material more. I think that's why people are reading pilots more, but they're also reading, you know, features, whatever. You know, the, traditionally, going in with a spec of the show that you're interviewing on is generally considered not a great move. But even that sometimes works. So it, it does depend a lot on the people in charge, just sort of what their own, you know, likes or dislikes or preferences are. Right, guys. Are you willing to read anything? Uh, pilots, spec episodes, plays, stories? Yeah, I mean, you need to have a drama spec. If you, if you want a drama job, you know, I'll read a play but and also a spec um, or a pilot. I would say write what you think you can write really, really well. Like if you love Mad Men and you have a great idea for an episode, do that. But if you have a great pilot idea that you want to do, you know, you just want your piece of writing to be the very best it can be. And, and backups can be good. It's like, yeah, you lead with a play if you think that's the best thing you've ever written, but you've also written an episode of Law and Order, so you can do a procedural show. That one is more about you as a writer. The other is about whether you're able to to reproduce a form. You know, so those are exactly the same question. The, the more specs you have that are different kinds of genres and styles that you think you can deliver, the better off you are because, you know, they may they may ask for different things. So, and, and if you're not currently employed, then just keep writing, you know, specs of all kinds, I would say, you know, as different as they can be from each other, um, but still something that you're, you have an ability to, to write. And make those first 10 pages dynamite, because we'll get stacks and stacks and stacks of these things. And uh, if I don't have time to go through, and this is, comes back when we were, we were, um, actually charged with on Deep Space Nine, seeing who gets to come in to pitch. They would, they would pre-read a bunch of scripts, and then you'd have to read them, and there'd be a stack this tall in your office that you've got to get through this week, as well as writing the show, breaking the show, and then doing whatever production you had to do. So if those 10, 10 pages aren't grabbing you if they aren't very well executed, if they're start, you're starting to see things like, you know, it's sloppy or it's spelled wrong or, I mean, things are all over the place. You're going, okay, how much time do I really have to see how much this guy has? Or do I go to the next one? Good advice. Uh, that is all the time we have, folks. It just remains for me to thank my panelists, Noreen Shankar, Bradley Thompson, David Weddle, and Meredith Steen. Thanks to 826LA and everyone here at Nerdist Industries at Meltdown Comics. Good night. Now leaving Nerdist.com.